0: What is fascism? Why can't it be reduced to historical concepts? Why does the fascist danger exist today, even within democratic states? Is Russia fascist? You're listening to the podcast Explaining Ukraine and its serious thinking in dark times by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. My name is Volodymyr Yermolov. I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World a website in English about Ukraine. My guest today is Jason Stanley, American philosopher and author of several books, including How Fascism Works and How Propaganda Works. Thinking in Dark Times is a podcast series by Ukraine World. This series seeks to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our joint reflection on the world's present, past and future. We try to see the light through and despite the current darkness. Ukraine World is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com slash Ukraine World. Jason Stanley, welcome to this podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Volodymyr. It's great to be in conversation with you.
0: So I have been reading uh, two of your recent most famous books, How Fascism Works and How Propaganda Works. And let me, these are the topics which interest me very, very much. And let us us talk about them a little bit. So fascism, uh, let me ask, what do you mean by fascism? Because uh, what I feel, you, you don't really mean these very specific historical periods of time Italy's Mussolini or Germany's Hitler and very specific totalitarian regimes, you have a much broader definition of fascism. Is that true?
1: Absolutely. Uh, It's absolutely true. I think if we don't recognize uh, something like the construct of fascism in all of our societies, uh, we're not doing social theory correctly and we won't be aware of the dangers uh, that are out there.
0: So what is fascism for you? Is it, um, is it a movement, a social movement? Is it a reaction to something which happens in democratic societies? Is it a a, a kind of a regime, a kind of an exertion of power? What is it?
1: Oh, the excellent question. So in a lot of the literature on fascism, they divide uh, – th- they divide the discussions between fascism as a, as a social and political movement, characteristically fascist, fascist parties running for office in democratic societies, such as Germany or the United States and fascism in power. These are total. These are two different chapters of Hannah Arendt's origins of totalitarianism. Um, so, uh, so I, I focus on fascism as a social and political movement. And I also focus Well, as part of that, really, I focus on fascism as a culture, and I focus on fascist practices. Uh, Toni Morrison, the American Nobel Prize winner, has an incredible uh, 2015 speech at Howard University, the traditional black college, called Racism and Fascism. And she says the United States uh, has often preferred fascist solutions to national questions, uh, such as mass incarcerating minorities so i look at my my work concerns fascist social and political movements fascist cultures a fascist culture uh and fascist practices uh and as far as uh as far as fascist uh a fascist culture and a fascist social and political movement it's a kind of a virulent ultranationalism based on race religion or a combination uh, of those uh, as in Romania for example uh Romanian fascism and uh and it and it's based on a kind of uh idea of of uh struggle between groups uh, it's violently anti-LGBT uh strict, promotes strict gender roles uh and that's how fascist fascist leaders uh, uh uh, draw the support of social conservatives against democracy. Uh, it, it invades against Marxists, liberals, and leftists. Uh, all of all of which it calls mar- all of whom it calls Marxists, uh, and typically, though not invariably, it's based on a cult of the leader.
0: But there is another point which interested me um, all the time, and in which you also touch upon in, in your writings, in your speeches, is that uh, fascism has this idea of a nostalgic past, of this Eldorado in the past, and this is what what happens with Donald Trump, with Let's Make America Great Again, right? This is what happens in Hitler, we who actually uh, argues that Germany needs to come back to the medieval. German Empire. this is what happens with Mussolini with his mythology of the Roman Empire. this is what happens with Putin with his mythology of uh, Stalin and Peter the First and Russian Empire of the 19th century, whatever. Do you agree that this this element of nostalgic past uh, plays a big role?
1: Oh, yes, it's absolutely central. That's why it's the first chapter of my book, How Fascism Works. <laughs> it's the very first characteristic of fascism, that it's uh, it's back, reactionary modernism in Jeffrey Hurf's terms. Uh, it looks back on a nostalgic past that never was. A great example here is India, uh, Hindu nationalism in India. The nice thing about the case of India is that RSS which is the uh basis of BG, BJP the current ruling party Hindu nationalist ruling party explicitly took it modeled itself after european fascism in particular german fascism where muslims play play the role of jews and it's central to BJP the ruling party of india and and hindu nationalism generally that india was once purely hindu and that the colonial forces came and added Islam and, uh, and India needs to return to its pure Hindu past. Uh, This is utterly central to all forms of fascism. As you point out, Putin harkens back to uh, both to a kind of contorted version of the Soviet Union, only its imperial past and, uh, and, uh, and earlier, incarnations, uh, of Russian empire. Uh, so this is utterly central to fascism. It's, it's, uh, fascism is backward looking towards a past that never was in the United States. It's backward looking towards a time of white supremacy and a time when supposedly men were men and women were women. Hence the, the features of fascism I discussed are, uh, are, Byproducts of the mythic past. In the mythic past, me- there were traditional gender roles. There were no homosexuals. Uh, men were men. Uh, the the chosen nation, the chosen racial group dominated, or religious group dominated, as you know, as in the Russian Empire, as in the Soviet Union, uh, where the where the Russians supposedly dominated. Uh, the United States it harkens back to manifest destiny. Which of course influenced Hitler's invasion of 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 Eastern Europe. Uh, Lebensraum is based on in part on the United States' genocide of the indigenous people, as Hitler says in his second book. Who anymore speaks of the Red Indian? Uh, so uh, so so this idea of a mythic past is utterly central, and it's the wellspring from which these other aspects, like strict gender roles. Uh, anti-LGBT, a colonial domination. Uh, They all flow from this specific version of the fascist mythic mythic past. Now, all forms of nationalism have a mythic past. Uh, That's just nationalism. Uh, That's why Benedict Anderson's book is called Imagined Communities. But the fascist mythic, mythic past is a more violent one. It involves total domination uh, by the chosen group, uh, total cultural domination, total racial domination, where it's a racial form of nationalism. So really, the other features uh, of most of the other features of, of fascism derive from the mythic past, as I call it in my work. Uh, and also, this is a way of distinguishing fascist to- fascism as a totalitarian authoritarian ideology from communism. Communism is forward-looking. Communism does not look to a mythic past. Communism is a kind of rationalistic sacrifice of the present for a future that has never been.
0: It depends on the the type of communism, because if we take the communism of uh, some people in the late communist era, they also have this mythology of the past. And it's interesting how to in Eastern Europe, how communists turned into conservatives. But uh le- let me ask right.
1: Yeah. I was thinking of particularly Mao Mao and the Great Leap Forward. Yeah.
0: Let me ask you about America, because America presents itself and has presented itself for long decades as a champion of democracy. And <laughs> when we when we talk about Ukraine, for example, the American support is is really crucial. And Ukrainian uh, story about the Russian invasion in many aspects is that this is the war of democracies against autocracies, of democracies against the neo-fascism which, which is present, for example, in Russia. But you are very critical to, uh, about America as well. And you show, uh, you, you're very critical about Trump, but you, you also, you're very critical about the way how America America functions. Um, do you do you see that this real danger of fascism in America, which is, you know uh, which presents itself as a champion of democracy? First
1: of all, let me say, I completely buy it by the view that the what's happening in in Russia and Ukraine is a battle of, of fascism against democracy the purest battle that we've seen since World War II. Uh, I completely buy into, I completely accept that Putin is the most clearly fascist leader and Russia the most clearly fascist country uh, since World War II. Uh, and uh, though other countries like India are tipping that way. Uh, and uh, so I clearly, accept. And, and but I think that Russia is the most clearly fascist nation since World War II. Uh, and I completely accept that that the dominant form uh, of, U- of Ukrainian nationalism today is a civic nationalism, uh, or I hope it is, uh, uh, that defends democracy, equal rights for LGBT, uh, and a host of other fundamental democratic freedoms. Uh, but I am a leftist. <laughs> uh, I'm a leftist, and I'm going to Ukraine in August, of to teach a summer school, because I believe if leftists can't stand up against fascism, uh, as in the Spanish Civil War, uh, then, you know, what kind of, le- you know, then it's not really leftism. Uh, so I completely accept the uh, the the framing, I think it's a correct framing, that it's fascism versus democracy. Um, uh, that said, I do not regard the United States as uh, pa- paradigm of democracy we're a very young democracy we're one of the world's youngest democracies we've only been a democracy since the n- mid 60s when black people were given in the south were given the right to vote by the, uh, as a result of the civil rights movement and the fact that the united states was being embarrassed on the national stage uh, by its ra- its its racism uh, look at our World War II movies. There's not a black face in any of our World War II movies. It's all about white people fighting Nazis. <laughs> now there are plenty of black soldiers in World War II. They just don't feature in our national iconic, in, in our national symbols like our World War II movies. Uh, we fought World War II with a segregated uh, army. Uh, the United States is the world's largest. Uh, has the world's largest prison system. We incarcerate more people than any other country on earth. Now, China's repression of its Uyghur population might change that. What's happening in Russia might change that. Uh, I haven't done the numbers, and the numbers are difficult to do. But the United States, uh, at the height of mass incarceration, uh, which was very recently, uh, maybe in 2010, 2011, 2012, was incarcerating seven, almost 1% of its population. That is not a democracy. Furthermore, uh, almost 10%, in 2014, almost 10% of the world's prison population Kate, were black Americans, our formerly enslaved population. Uh, you know, if Germany w- had, still had Jewish people, and was and and Jewish people filled their prisons. Nobody would be fooled about what was going on. Uh, black Americans uh, were the most imprisoned people in the world in 2014. Uh, I, I'm guessing that the Uyghur Muslims in China have since surpassed that. But there's only 38 million Black Americans. If you look at state by state in the United States, uh, you know Mississippi. Has like 35 percent or 38 percent of its population is Black American. Black Americans have no political power in Mississippi. Uh, so many of our states are open one-party, par- racist uh, autocracies. <laughs> you know, so uh, so, and the United States has somehow been fine with that. We've said, okay, you know, it's the South. Uh, labor unions have been smashed in the South to the degree that. You don't need to call in police to break. You don't need strike breakers to break up strikes. The police will do it for you. Uh, you know the racial regime in the South is is incredibly intense, uh, and in the North as well. In the city in which I live, New Haven, I am sitting uh, in a in a house in a neighborhood that is almost all white. My children are black, uh, and they count the number of black black. Families in our neighborhood at five, six, seven, uh, but New Haven is is uh, one third or forty percent black. Uh, all black people are consigned to this. Almost all, like ninety five percent of the black population, is consigned to a tiny, incredibly poor district in this small city. Uh, if you walked around in my neighborhood, you were you would never guess you were in a city that is minority white. So uh, so, and this is of course the wealthiest neighborhood. So in the United States, if you go to Latin America, you see the effects of U.S. colonialism. Look at we've, what we've done to, uh, to Chile, uh, toppled a democratic government and replaced it with Pinochet, uh, a fascist uh, who, whose economics was directed by the University of Chicago Economics Department. Um, uh, Brazil. Uh, we've supported we supported their military dictatorship. If you go down to Latin America, nobody has the view that the United States is anything other than an anti democratic colonial power. It is only in Eastern Europe that you find that view and to some degree in Western Europe, it is absent from uh, from Latin America, for example, and for obvious reasons so Uh, So we're a very young democracy with extremely fragile institutions. Most of our states are, are, you know, have never had a democratic culture. They've had a racial hierarchy, authoritarian, one-party culture. Uh, And that's just the United States. Uh, Now we are supplying Ukraine with weapons. Thank goodness. Uh, We do sometimes and occasionally represent uh, and back democracies. But it's always kind of accidental.
0: Let me slightly disagree with that, because uh, I don't know America as, as well as you do, of course. But uh, for me, the, the question of democracy, the question of liberty, is not the question that you have it or you don't have it. Uh, it's a question of enlargement, enlargement of the space. Uh, and, Absolutely, and, and, it's a question and, of degree. Yeah, it's a question of degree. It's a question of how the society is enlarging the, the categories of beings, human beings and hopefully in the future also non-human beings uh, which it treats with the concept of dignity and uh, the issues that you're discussing is is a sign of probably probably uh, democracy with with a disease, because there is a discussion about that, and and uh, there is a certain process. Whereas in fascist countries, you don't have this discussion, you don't have this debate, you don't have a, a question how to integrate the uh, the marginalized categories of people. Uh, they are just marginalized, they are destroyed, they are annihilated, and that's what that's what happening. Uh, Mm, but let me, let me ask you a question about, about democracies and fascism.
1: Could I, could I just intervene on that? As I said, we mass incarcerate a huge number of our black population. Our black population are democratic heroes. Our advances in democracy are due largely to our black population. Like the civil rights movement happened in Mississippi and Alabama, which is a terrifying place to, to push for equal civil equal black rights. But when you place people in prison for long pe- periods of time, for example, one out of every nine black men by the age of 35 has experienced solitary confinement. You are muting black voices. You are, it, when you're repeat, when the media is repeatedly presenting rebellions, black rebellions in response to vicious police violence, which is of course what's you know, and vicious e- and, and tremendous economic inequality. Uh, when uh, then that is muting black voices. It is hard to speak from prison.
0: Sure, uh, you know, I absolutely agree with that. Let me ask if, if we look at the at the globe, uh, and of course, in in like in the nineties, there was this kind of a utopian vision. Uh, I think in Western Europe, in, in America, about the, the victory of the liberal democracy over the autocracies around the world, about this end of history story. But then um, from the early 21st century, I think uh, this uh, belief has been weakened. And democracies started to feel weak, and this is what I feel that this is what I hear from from my friends in the West. So there is a mistrust in democracies, there is a disbelief in democracies, there is a a, a discourse that democracies are hypocritical, that they are weak, that they are losing in this struggle against authoritarianism, and the examples that you uh, mentioned, that for example. Today's India or today's Russia, they show that this advance of the new authoritarian or new fascist regime in the world. So when you look into the next decades, what do you see? Do you see that that this advance will continue or you see a capacity of the democratic world uh, to push back? And I think the, the the Ukrainian struggle is a sign that the democratic forces, democratic societies can push back. Yeah, I
1: mean, you you just threw me a softball, right? You're in Ukraine. (laughs) Ukraine is showing um, what what Pericles said in his uh, funeral oration speech, famous funeral oration speech. He said, democracies are stronger because they choose to fight. So, uh, you know, we're seeing that in Ukraine versus Russia. We're seeing that ancient wisdom come to light. Uh, Now, that said... Uh, The conditions for democracy are not there in countries like the United States or India. The condition no democratic political theorist, dating back to Aristotle, would say that the United States could even plausibly be a democracy. We have mass inequality. We have jaw-dropping inequality. We have poverty that rivals the poverty of any country on earth and we have wealth that exceeds the, the, uh, the wealth of any country on earth. Uh, that kind of inequality uh, cannot re- uh, undergird a democracy. Uh, Aristotle uh, argues that democracy would never allow such inequalities and is thereby to be preferred over the uh, aristocracy, the aristocracy of the elites that his teacher Plato preferred. But... Uh, but n- nobody would look at the United States, no democratic political theorist ever. Uh, Aristotle, Rousse- Rousseau to the present day would say that the United States could plausibly be a democracy. And that's why we so, see so m- many anti-democratic, we see the popularity of so, of so many uh, uh, fascist and uh, leaders and fascist ideas. Of course, as Du Bois argues in, in Black Reconstruction, uh, the wealthy use race to divide the poor. Um, so, you know, you, you distract from the real problems. You see this in Russia too, uh, the use of nationalism uh, to distract from the real economic problems uh, that face that country. Uh, whenever you have uh, these real economic problems, problem, uh, then you can divide the country with nationalism, be it Russian nationalism, or as in the United States, white nationalism. Um, so, uh, so, uh, what you see in India is the result of a virulent, uh, virulent religious nationalism. Uh, what you see in Israel, the sort of rising fascist social and political movement that is taking over the country in Israel is kind of Jewish nationalism. Um, so, so what we see again and again is the underestimation of the power of nationalism. Uh, of the especially the kind of violent nationalism uh, that Russia has. And we have to worry about that in Ukraine too. We have to worry once Ukraine wins this war, which it will, uh, we have to worry uh, that nationalist elements will supersede the democratic ones. Uh, Fanon in The Wretched of the Earth says that anti-colonial nationalism, that's the kind of nationalism that's in Ukraine today, uh, that anti-colonial nationalism uh, must transform once the war is won. Uh, and, uh, and my hope is that uh, that, that will happen. My hope and my expectation is that that will happen in Ukraine. Uh, but yeah, I see Ukraine as fulfilling the promise that Pericles, uh, uh, Pericles uh, gave long ago, um, that democracies are stronger uh, in battle. Uh, because the soldiers are fighting for a cause. They're fighting for their freedom. And Russians are don't know what they're fighting for. <laughs> so they're weaker in battle. Uh, and I think what you see in other putatively democratic countries is you see they're not really democratic. Um, they They don't have a democratic, a vibrant democratic culture like you see in Ukraine today. A vibrant sense that democracy requires struggle, that democracy requires defense. I think... Among the world's leader leaders in democracy are black Americans and have always they've always been soldiers for democracy and you don't find among black Americans the sense that you can be lazy in a democracy you find among black Americans that you always must fight for democracy Uh, you must go in to the most frightening places and fight for democracy when the police brutalize you you must go and fight and, and stand up against the police. Uh, So any group of people uh, that is victimized by nationalism and wishes to save democracy, not any group of people, because sometimes it's nationalism versus nationalism. But you see democracy strengths in Ukraine. You see democracy strengths among black Americans fighting for a multiracial democracy. So to say that democracy is weak is to overlook Ukraine, is to overlook the struggle of black Americans, uh, the, the, the struggle of many Palestinians. Uh, the struggle of many oppressed people fighting for multiracial democracy. To look at only the dominant group uh, in a country is to overlook the strength of democracy, which is often held by the the national minorities.
0: So I think what you pointed is that um, actually there should be another approach than just geopolitical approach or political approach. So there is a certain element of thinking which I would call a geopolitics of values which divides uh, uh, the world into democratic countries and non-democratic countries but there is another approach which looks deeper in societies and sees non-democratic elements in the so-called democratic countries and de- democratic elements in the non-democratic countries and Absolutely. here I, I think I think here is is the most interesting thing. Is that, for example, for me, if if you look at Europe, uh, the most interesting things that that are taking place in the twenty first century, is what's happening in countries uh, around the European Union, uh, not only Ukraine or not only Georgia and Moldova, but also the countries of Maghreb, the countries of North Africa, the countries of Middle East, because in the twenty first century you already see, you have we have already seen the the wave of, uh, of revolutions in these countries. And even despite the fact that in many of them, they were defeated, um, I think that uh, these movements are actually, can say the next words in the next decades. And this is probably very, very interesting in countries like Iran, in countries like Syria, in countries like Belarus and, and, and others. What do you think about this?
1: I think it's absolutely correct. I mean, I think particularly your point about uh, anti-democratic practices, anti-democratic movements in democratic countries, of course, virtually all fascist movements and particularly the classic ones in Italy and Germany were fascist movements in democratic countries. (laughs) So uh, Putin won elections and it's very popular today. So, uh, but I mean, it's an anti-democratic country, obviously, Uh, but he won elections in a democracy, in a partial democracy. So anti democratic this is how I view things. I view every country as having fascist elements or aspects. So all democracies have fascist movements, fascist elements and aspects, and all non-democratic countries have, uh, have, uh, democratic, uh, movements. I mean, uh, the United States is not really a democratic country or partial democracy at best, but black Americans have been a democratic movement, uh, in, in the United States uh, that has, you know, the civil rights movement is an emblem for the world, uh, of struggles for of de- struggle for democracy. Um, so, uh, so I think, I, you know, I agree with you, the Tunisian revolution, uh, what we see in Iran, the struggles for democracy in Iran. I mean, it's so moving against one of the most repressive regimes in the world. Um, you know, the br- brutalization uh, of the women uh, in, in Iran during the most recent uprising, uh, it's just been... Uh, her- horrifying to see but it's also remarkable to see the democratic spirit the unquenchable democratic spirit uh of the peoples of the world uh and uh you know it's been absolutely heartbreaking to see them being crushed um but you know here again ukraine is is you know uh an emblem for the world like our uh, civil rights movement or Uh, You know, look at Maidan, uh, uh, look at the result uh, of Maidan, which was a democratic version of civic nationalism, a version of civic nationalism that embraces democracy. So I absolutely agree that, you know, I agree with your analysis that we need to look for democratic movements in anti-democratic countries. That's the civil rights movement in the South or the civil rights movement period, Uh, the black political rebellion in the United States uh, um the iranian protest movement uh the uh and uh the various um the various rev- the various democratic struggles Syri- unfortunately you know when you look at syria uh when you look at some of these democratic struggles they've uh, belarus uh, obviously um uh, the repression in belarus is staggering and horrifying for the world uh you know this wealthy pretty wealthy tech savvy country you know that suddenly became brutally viciously repressive once a democratic movement arose or even more repressive uh so so it's been depressing right and that's why the world is looking to ukraine we're looking for a win
0: Yes, but there is also another question: uh, how we can describe societies in which we don't see this struggle, and, and this is a question that Ukrainians are asking uh, about Russian society: why we don't see any any big struggle in the Russian society against this uh, this fascism. And it's not only the question that you know the regime is so strong that it just just oppresses the decent people, which is certainly true for Russia, but also a uh, uh, it is also a question about the certain background idea which, which is dominating in a, in a specific culture, in a, spef- a specific country. And for example, uh, uh, it's, it's clear for me that the background idea in Russia currently is the idea of Great Russia. Which excludes Ukrainians, which excludes Belarusians as, as specific nations, which um, has this messianic uh, attitude to, towards the world, and I think that this, this idea is is profoundly toxic, and this is the idea from which all the all the consequences of these fascist uh, ideas rise. Whereas when I see when I look at um, at the Western societies, I see the, the the key problem for me is the problem of hypocrisy. So I see this idea that yeah, we build a multicultural, multiracist society, inclusive, uh, blah blah blah. But then you're right that this all you know goes back to profound inequalities and then the dominant groups that use these ideas uh, very, very hypocritically without really believing in them. But at least the ideas are present, and at least, when when you see this struggle against this d- domination, this this struggle seems to be uh, seems to be legitimate. Let me ask you about the words because the words are very important. And uh, uh, how how uh, how just do you feel that we can use these terms of fascism in that broad sense? Because on the one hand, it's it's really it's really good because it opens our eyes on, on the phenomenon of today and not just talking about Hitler or Mussolini, etc. On the other hand, there is two dangers which I see. The first danger is that we actually label fascism everything which has this hierarchical leader-focused or nostalgic uh, politics And uh, we actually contribute to these divisions of society on us and them, which you actually criticize when you criticize fascism, right? So fascism is also used, and by the way, the... The Russians Russian propaganda has clearly showed that that fascism the, the word fascism is actually used as a is a huge propaganda tool because you actually dehumanize your opponents calling them fascists, etc. So how to avoid this danger? And another question is well, you,
1: well Volodymyr, you've asked at least two vital questions, each of which requires a lengthy answer. <laughs> first one is utterly brilliant and central to the black intellectual tradition and while you were asking it i was wondering like how much frederick douglas you've you've read how much du bois uh because this is the first question is uh there are these societies that call themselves democratic but they're deeply hypocritical like the united states um isn't it still important that in, the, in those societies uh, that they identify with a democratic vocabulary because that gives uh, minorities and protest movements some purchase as long as the democratic values are tied to national identity? Um, or should you just say we're not a democracy at all? And what that first question calls attention to is the distinction between a the the country like the United States and a country like Russia. In Russia, the democratic vocabulary does not have that much purchase, and that's, of course, due in some part to, uh, in large part, to Russia's past. There's no democratic vocabulary or democratic ideals tied to Russian national identity like there is in the United States and secondly uh secondly it's due to folks like surkov who uh who intentionally targeted the democratic vocabulary and intentionally created this idea that this link between democracy uh and uh and hypocrisy uh and it's also due to the depredations of u.s ne- neoliberalism where the iron curtain falls and then Russians and other Eastern Europeans are confronted by some of the worst poverty they've ever experienced. So they come to associate democracy with brutal neoliberalist policies that leave them in fam- basically in famines and destitute. Those are three, three reasons why a country like Russia, you know, rejects democracy is not is leans towards authoritarianism. But, uh, but this is your point is so central and it's one of the most important points in black intellectual history because there's been a struggle in black intellectual history, a long struggle, whether or not to adopt, say, the U.S. Constitution as a freedom document and to to use it to, you know, uh, and the do- use it to shame white America, to say, look, these are the ideals you believe in. These are the founders' ideals. We represent these ideals. And to... On, on the other hand, many black intellectuals and and writers and activists have sought to reject the U.S. Constitution. Have sought to reject has have said, "Look, this is a justification of slavery," uh, which in la- in large part it was. Uh, so uh, so th- and and I think and I agree with you that uh, the connection Americans have between American national identity and ideals like liberty does give uh, does give uh, national minorities uh, and democratic projects greater purchase. So you're right there, and it's one of the foundational discussions of black intellectual thought. Um, Douglas defended Frederick Douglass defended the U.S. Constitution. So, and D- Frederick Douglass's speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, is about that topic, where he says this, co- this celebration is given in 1852. This celebration is about liberty, yet millions of black Americans are, live in slavery. So he's using liberty, uh, the connection of, of liberty to, uh, to American identity in that way. And my hope for Ukraine is that will be Ukrainian national identity a link between Ukraine Ukraine and democracy and that will protect against fascism as you know so i think that was a very profound point the second and quite distinct point that you make is about the use of the fascist vocabulary and whether or not it's it's othering i'm going to go in reverse direction here uh putin putin who's a fascist representing a fascist country calls Uh, Ukraine fascist, come on, that's just projection. Uh, It's like saying uh, it has nothing to do with vocabulary. He was always going to call Ukraine fascist and Nazi. Just like he says, while as a justification for committing genocide in Ukraine, Putin says that Ukrainians are committing genocide against Russians. So it doesn't show anything. It's just a classic fascist, Projection to call the other and uh, what you what you are, and to say that the other is doing what you're going to do, and this is as old as Thucydides, right? I mean, uh, uh, in the in the Mytilenean debate, um, the Cleon says we have to kill all the Mithilinians because they would kill us if if tables were turned. This is called accusation in the mirror in literature on genocidal speech. So Putin is just doing all the greatest hits of genocidal speech. So I think we can set Putin's hypocritical use aside. Now on the question of whether accusations of fascism are are politically useful or not. First of all, like you, I'm a philosopher. So political utility is not my interest and not my game. Factuality and truth is my game. And so I don't care about political utility. I mean, I care about it as a citizen, but my job is to speak the truth. And that's, that's what philosophers are supposed to do. So if it's fascism, I'm going to call it fascism. Uh, you know, the, the claim that, uh, that fascism can only occur in interwar Europe. Um, you know, uh, Hitler in Mein Kampf says the United States is his model of a national state he's trying to build there. Uh, Madison Grant's 1916 book, *The Passing of the Great Race*, Hitler reads it in prison. He writes fan letters to Madison Grant. Madison Grant went to Yale University, where I to where I teach. Um, uh, Madison Grant's book is a, you know, is a is a warning against immigration that it's going to threaten what he calls the native population of the United States, the Nor- Nordic whites. Um, On the us versus them vocabulary, yes, I agree fascism creates an us versus them. Uh, The us versus them was my editor's choice. I think it's highly misleading. I wouldn't have had it in my own choice as a subtitle. Um, uh, You know, uh, it's when you have an anti-democratic party. Let's just always remember that in the classic European cases of fascism, uh, in the classic European cases of fascism, the Nazis and, and Italy, uh, German fascism and Italian fascism. We're talking about, you know, uh, uh you know, dem- democracies, fascist social and political movements, fascist leaders and democracies. Um, so so it, it's, it's, it's undeniable that there can be fascist social and fascist parties in a democracy. It is factual. Even if you constrain your use of fascism to the classic paradigm European cases, it, that's undeniable uh, that there can be fascist parties. And if you don't call them fascist parties, well, you know, you're not calling things what they are. Uh, and my job as a philosopher is to call things what they are.
0: Thank you, Jason. This is an amazing conversation. I would like to continue it more uh, more and more. Probably we will have the occasion to speak when you travel to Ukraine. But we will need to end this conversation today, maybe to continue. Someone else. This was Jason Stanley, a philosopher from Yale. And I hope we try to um, answer at least bits of a question uh, what uh, fascism is. Jason Stanley, thank you so much for joining this conversation.
1: Thank you so much. It's an honor to be in discussion with you.
0: This was a podcast series, Thinking in Dark Times, by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. This series seeks to make Ukraine and the current Russian war against Ukraine a focal point of our joint reflection on the world's present, past, and future. We try to see the light through and despite the current darkness. My guest today was Jason Stanley, American philosopher and author of several books, including How Fascism Works and How Propaganda Works. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko. I'm Ukrainian philosopher and journalist and chief editor of Ukraine World. You can support us at patreon.com ukraineworld Ukraine World. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.